NWP Radio. You're listening to NWP Radio, a production of the National Writing Project. NWP. Okay, everyone, it's no shave November, but I promise you, I've been keeping a really close shave because I want to try to look at least 120th as good as our special guest today. You can call me Brian, and I'm thrilled to host tonight's special episode of The Right Time with my colleague, Tanya Baker, director of the National Programs. Um, So today we're taking you to the ball field um, with the historical nonfiction and the brilliance of Dr. Yohuru Williams. I continue to be proud of this show, but tonight I'm also sort of without words. Uh, Yohuru Williams has been a mentor, a sage, and an all-star in my life since 2011, and I love this guy to death. His new book is more than a baseball story. It's really the story of how we all deserve first-class citizenship and respect in the United States of America. It showcases the hope for democracy and the and the perseverance of an individual, Jackie Robinson, just call him Jack, and his family as they endured so much, but overcame it nonetheless. Tanya, are you ready for the show? All good on the West Coast? Everything. Oh, that's, there we go. What am I supposed to be, Brian? I don't know. Everything is great on the West Coast. It's about to rain, which is very exciting. Uh, and you probably know that soccer and baseball take up a lot of time in my life. So the opportunity for us to air our first author of historical nonfiction and for it to be Jackie Robinson and a baseball story is just too much as far as I'm concerned. Um, with us today, we also have <laughs> Joe Anson, who was quickly recommended by our friend, Dr. Chris Crow, professor of English at Brigham Young University. When Brian learned about Yohuro's book, um, Call Me Jack, the story of Jackie Robinson, Black Freedom Fighter, co-written with Michael G. Long, we knew we needed a recommendation for a brilliant writer in mind, um, from a brilliant writer in mind, Chris Crow. He's a champion for sports and literacy and proudly Joe. <laughs> Whoa. Oh, Brian, you wrote some of these lines. I can tell you. <laughs> um, let's see. We've already said you're the first historical nonfiction writer we've had on the show. and We look forward to the conversation ahead. So um, there we go. This is great. Yeah, I did. I, I, I like the way that whoa rhymed with Joe. And I was like, whoa, Joe. I, 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 I did give I that. I read comment. them and I didn't hear them. <laughs> it's so came funny. Out of my mouth. You know, it's the poetic rhythmic writer in me. So anyway, disclosure, I get to introduce Dr. Williams. When I first began my time as the director of the Connecticut Writing Project in Fairfield, I quickly looked around me to find intellectual guides and people to help me cope with what it's like to be an academic. This led me immediately to the activism, the brilliance, the craft, and the mind of Dr. Yohuro Williams. On a daily basis, I try to channel his integrity to make the decisions I do. Every single day, I'm like, what would Yohuro do? And that's what I aim for. As Jackie Robinson is to Yohuro, Yohuro is to me. Although I will never <laughs> hit the gym quite like he does, and I'm never going to be able to mix music as he does. The beats aren't with me, nor can I have a puppet show quite like Yohuro Williams. Like, I do aspire to be 
just like one one hundredth of him. Dr. Yohuru Williams is a distinguished university chair, professor of history, and the founding director of the Racial Justice Initiative at the University of St. Thomas. He received his PhD from Howard University in 1998 and is the author and editor of several books, including Rethinking the Black Freedom Movement and Black Power White Politics, Civil Rights, Black Power, and Black Panthers in New Haven. Dr. William has appeared on a variety of local and national radio and television programs, most notably CNN, BET, History Channel, Huffington Post or HuffPost, Matter of Fact Listening Tour with Soul Dad O'Brien and NPR, NPR. His scholarly articles have appeared in the American Bar Association's Insights on Law and Society, the Organization of American Historians Magazine of History, the Black Scholar, and the Journal of Black Studies. He also has chapters that he's written in books that still are in my filing cabinet. Remember those that I pull out from time to time when I have incredible historians coming through my teacher program. Over to you, Tanya. <laughs> Sorry, Joe. I always feel bad introducing a teacher after Brian has introduced an author. That's okay. I feel very underqualified myself now. All right. Okay. Here we are. Uh, Joe Anson, we are thrilled to have you with us tonight. You are the perfect interviewer for this book, and we're excited for the conversation you're about to embark on with Yohuru. But let me first introduce you. Joe Anson has been working in education since 2000. After spending 18 years teaching junior high language arts in Spanish Fork, Utah, he now works in teacher education at Bellevue University in Nebraska. He, his involvement with the National Writing Project began with the Central Utah Writing Project in 2009, and he was heavily involved there before he packed up his wife and five children, bold, and moved a thousand miles away. He hopes to become more involved in the Nebraska Writing Project, that is when he's not, observing student teachers, designing curriculum, such as a new class he's excited to teach, teaching adolescent literature and social justice. He's an avid baseball fan, that's excellent news. Um, and he also enjoys, I love this description, charring mammal flesh over open flames and dabbling in poetry. That's awesome. Something about trying mammal flesh over an open flame is quite poetic in itself. In itself. Yeah. But we thinking about those two things together. Joe, before we move on, I do have to ask, who is your team? Um, I'm an Atlanta Braves fan. Always have been, always will be. I can respect that. All right. Excellent. Okay, Joe, I'm going to hand it over to you, and I believe you'll get us started with a writing prompt, which we won't actually write to, but if listeners want to, they could pause and write to your writing prompt before the interview starts. Off to you, Joe. All right, sounds good. So um, one thing that I've always loved doing when I would teach my English classes is to use text-based prompts. Um, and when I was asked to be on this program, I was in the middle of reading um, Randy Rebay's Patron Saints of Nothing, um, excellent book. And this passage, um, just, it just kind of struck me, and I thought it fit really nicely with, with the, the discussion of, of Call Me Jack today. Um, for a little context, for those of you ever that are unfamiliar with patron saints, um, the protagonist, Jay, is on his way to the Philippines to visit relatives and find out what really happened to his cousin, June, who was murdered. Um, and this little snippet comes from a letter that June wrote to Jay several years before, and, and Jay is now reading, rereading it. It says, it seems to me that there are so many older than us who are able to take care of those in need. If everyone did a little bit, 
then everybody would be okay, I think. Instead, most people do nothing, and that is the problem. And so the prompt is to write about something that you have seen or experienced that is or was unjust, but nobody seems to do anything about. Dive into the issue, explore, come up with solutions, go for it, have fun and write. Awesome. All right, I'm gonna think about that question and sign off for the two of you. Have a good interview and we'll see you in about 30 minutes. When we come back on, that means we need to probably close up the show. <laughs> All right, sounds good. Okay. So Uhuru, I guess I just wanna say it's, it's a pleasure to, to meet you and, and be with you. And I was thrilled to be asked to, to conduct this interview. Feeling is mutual, Joe. I'm glad to spend some time with you too. Okay, and I guess before we start, I have to ask, um, I, I heard you're from Connecticut, but which, who is your team? You know, the, the irony is I am not a baseball fan at all. I grew up a frustrated Mets fan because my grandparents were Mets fans. And so that basically drove the love of baseball out of me um, at a young age. Um, so I, I, I am not committed to any one team. I lived in the Philadelphia metro area for a while. So I became kind of a Phillies admirer, but at the core, I'm still a Mets guy at heart. I, I can understand the frustration. That's good. What, my, I grew up um, following Dale Murphy. He was my, my, my model, because I, I guess my swing was like his. Um, and when he got traded to Philadelphia, I became a surrogate Philly fan for a couple of years before he moved on. So That's awesome. Excellent. My colleague is a diehard Phillies fan, and she is watching, getting ready for, she's got a game going on at her house here in half an hour at this huge party. Um, awesome. Uh, all right, so I think I know the answer because I, I've read this book now. Um, but when it came to Call Me Jack and I ordered it, um, and for just someone browsing the stacks at you know, Barnes & Noble or you know, on Amazon lists, I think it's, you can argue that there are more books written about Jackie Robinson than any other ball player. At least I've read more about Jackie Robinson than any other ball player. Um, why another Jackie Robinson book? It's such a great question, Joe, and it's a question that Michael and I have gotten on the road a lot as we talk to young people, as we've been kind of touring and talking about the book. And it was a young girl in Chicago who asked the question and she asked it in a way where she said, you know, we went, we just went to the library today and we saw so many books in Jackie Robinson and, and what makes your book different? And what I shared with her is I think a message that's important to all young people who write. And that is, you know, sometimes what I shared with her is that our, our, your, your teachers will give you these writing assignments and you think to yourself, why do we need another paper on George Washington or the Civil War that's already been done? You know, I, why don't I just tell you what's in the book? And I said, well, each of us brings a unique perspective to the work. And that perspective is important. Um, John Hope Franklin and Abraham Eisenstadt wrote about it in the American History series in this way. Every generation tends to write its own history for it tends to see the past and the foreshortened perspective of its own experience. A lot of people read that to be about presentism, but for me, it's Franklin and Eisenstadt saying, we're influenced by our history, by our moment. And so in the aftermath of everything that we saw happening from 2017 to 2020 in professional sports with so many athletes speaking out, using their platforms to challenge racial inequality in America. We thought it was important to revisit the legacy of Jack Roosevelt Robinson because for most Americans, he's frozen in this particular moment. 1947, Branch Rickey, 
not fighting back. And that's the Jack, Jackie Robinson story, um, his nine years with the Dodgers. For us, the Jack Roosevelt Robinson story, the story of this uh, ball player's life is far more significant. In fact, Jack was famous for saying, a life is not important except in the impact that it has on other lives. It dovetails and resonates nicely with the quote that you put up from the very beginning, the writing prompt. Um, what does it mean when people are silent? And what we wanted to emphasize is that Jack was never silent about racial injustice. We only know him in that short window, or most people only know him for that short window of what happens when he's playing uh, professional baseball. But his life was impactful in so many more ways. Yeah, I I have to completely agree. That's what I, I totally got out of this. You know, I'm as a diehard baseball fan, I, I know the baseball from about Jack Robinson. It was a lot of the other smaller details that I had, you know, had pieced for me here in this biography and from another one. And I, I love how it just all came together. Um, and I, I don't know, maybe it's the geeky English teacher in me, but I went through and just kind of made different points about um, different places where I think you emphasized um, where he, you, you called him Jack Robinson and when he went by Jackie Robinson. Um, and then I, I just wanted to ask you, was that on purpose and why is that distinction so important? I think it's important for a couple of reasons. Such a great question, Joe. Um, and, and I think it, it speaks to young people in a really powerful way today. We wanted to emphasize the idea that Jackie is as much an invention as a nickname. So when we think about Jackie Robinson, this is this um, collaboration between Branch Rickey and Wendell Smith and those who are interested in the success of that experiment in 1947, making Jack Roosevelt Robinson palatable to not only Dodgers fans, but the American people. I mean, the only way that this can work is if he agrees not to fight back for that first year and that kind of sticks. And you see this tension, or at least we do when you know a more intimate Jack Robinson between Jackie the invention and Jack the person. Jack was a freedom fighter his entire life. In fact, when he's inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King says in kind of introducing him or, or speaking on his behalf, Jack was a sit-inner before the sit-ins and a freedom rider before the freedom rides. He's not just saying that because he's trying in some you know, nebulous way to connect Jack to the civil rights activism of that moment. He's speaking to a life of resistance. Jack refusing to give up his seat in 1944 on a Texas army post on a segregated bus, nearly being court-martialed for that. Uh, Jack as a high school student um, sitting in at a lunch counter in Pasadena, California with his friend Ray Bartlett. You know, Certainly that moment doesn't result in the desegregation of lunch counters in Pasadena, but it demonstrates this long-term commitment to racial justice that Jack evidenced throughout his life. And we thought it was important to, to emphasize that for young people. We um, kind of recognize in Jack's athletic career um, his greatness on the baseball diamond, this exceptional human being for, for those things. We would not have known about the everyday acts of democracy, the everyday acts of resistance, that he engaged in, if not for that. But it's an important lesson for young people in that it takes all of us to make a commitment to everyday acts of democracy and everyday acts of resistance, um, pushing for a more perfect union, so to speak, in order to preserve our democracy. So Jack in so many ways speaks, I think, powerfully to our contemporary moment. And again, one of the reasons why I'm so glad we you know, decided to do the book when we did and you know, uh, events just kind of happened that kept emphasizing to us, this was the right project to be working on. Excellent. So I guess my question is, I mean, I, I love all of this, the, these everyday acts of democracy, the everyday acts of resistance that we don't usually see when we go to all these older, um, I don't know, say, 
I guess older um, texts and and films and things about Jack Robinson. Um, why do you think that a lot of this activism in his life is left out of those other narratives that were told previously? Again, such a phenomenal question, um, Joe. I, I think look a couple things. I think we became comfortable with this mythology of Jackie Robinson to the detriment of the person. Um, I always think about William Dean Howell's famous advice to Edith Wharton when she embarked on her writing career at the turn of the century, where he you know, says to her, if you want to be successful in this business, recognize that what the American people always want is a tragedy with a happy ending. Mm -hmm. We love a simple morality narrative that, or progress narrative that begins with um, the protagonist in one state, and at the end, everything is resolved and, and we get our happy ending. And the Jack story lends itself to that in so many ways. He's denied um, access to baseball. He goes on and by the force of his will is successful in the game, helps the Dodgers win a World Series, and we wrap it up in a bow. And that's the story. Um, certainly, I was at the Jackie Robinson Foundation when the Brian Hegeland uh, biopic 42 came out. And that's a story that they chose to, to tell as well. The problem with that is, is we find ourselves in the midst of the World Series now. It cuts out the Jack Robinson, who in October of 1972, you know, um, less than two weeks before he dies, yeah. going out, staring down, you know, being invited throughout the ceremonial first pitch at the World Series and saying in that moment, using his platform to say, until I look down the third baseline and I see an African-American, a person of color looking back at me, we have not really achieved transformation in baseball. Um, the, the process that began with me in 1947 isn't over. Baseball needs to make a deeper commitment. America needs to make a deeper commitment to racial justice. That's the essence of Jack Roosevelt Robinson, and that's what you know we wanted to capture. Excellent. Well, going off track a little bit here, um, what do you think? Just with all of your research and your your intimacy with this material, what do you think Jack Roosevelt Robinson would think about the major leagues today? Well, you know there was a, a big dust up. Um, actually, two things, Joe. Uh, it was there was the big dust up that happened uh, when the World Series began, where they said this is the first time. Well, there are no African-American players on the World Series roster, no uh, Black Americans, per, bl Black mm -hmm. people were born in the United States. And it was an immediate backlash, you know, baseball is a global game, shouldn't we celebrate diversity large writ? And yet at the same time, that's the warning that Jack was lob uh, levying in 1972. Don't forget how difficult it uh, was in order to get to this point and recognize that even though baseball was taken off as a global game, that Jack himself had influenced so many of those international players. Um, uh, people like Roberto Clemente, who idolized Jack and came to the United States and, and in many ways um, emulated uh, Jack's externally fake focused attention to young people, so on and so forth. But the problem is, in Major League Baseball in particular, why has that not translated? And these were issues that Jack cared deeply about later in life. When he leaves baseball, he becomes an executive for Chock Full of Nuts, and he's focused on um, creating job opportunities for African-Americans. In the 1960s, he'll team up with several of his colleagues in order to establish a bank, Freedom National Bank in Harlem, because African-Americans don't have access to low interest loans to buy homes and to establish businesses. And at the close of his life, he and Rachel actually start a construction company and are going to be involved in the, uh, the work of building homes. So Jack was always thinking about, you know, how do we create opportunity? So we think about MLB today. Why are there no young African-Americans who are interested in the game in that way? Part of it is um, economic and social. Uh, you know, they're not interested in the game, but the game is also very expensive. It's not accessible in a way that it once was. Um, it's very expensive to play. 
Um, and there's very little representation. These are all the things that Jack understood and warned about. Um, Hank Aaron as well and other you know, prominent uh, baseball players, African-American baseball players. And so we're kind of seeing the fruition of that today. So it's ironic that Jack's number is retired throughout the game and we pay homage to that moment. And yet something that should be at the core of, of baseball in terms of maintaining that and recognizing the importance of a diversity um, initiative that ensures the inclusion of, as some people call foundational Black Americans, African Americans, uh, Black people born in the United States, that says a lot, that that's not there. I, I agree with everything you said there. I, great questions, great answers. Um, there's still a lot more work that needs to be done, not just in Major League Baseball, but across, across the globe um, when it comes to um, writing inequalities. Um, and I guess, I've just finished designing a course um, teaching adolescent literature and social justice. And my big takeaway that I want for teachers of language arts when they teach literature to students, and like I said, I really geeked out about the teachability of this nonfiction piece, um, is I want them to understand that behind everything that you read or experience in life, I think you need to ask, so what? Now that I've read this, now that I have this new information, so what? What do I need to do about it? And so what would you hope the so what is when people finish reading Call Him Jack? I hope it's a couple of things and I'll, and I'll the first is a couple of months ago, there was a Chicago uh, White Sox player, um, African-American player, very talented, who got in a dust up with the New York, a player from the New York Yankees. Um, the, the Chicago player was Tim Anderson. Mm -hmm. And what happened in that exchange is that the two of them, um, got in some type of altercation on the field. And later on, they asked Anderson what this white player had said to him. And he said, he called me Jackie. Mike Long and I heard this and we said, now Anderson loves and idolizes Jackie Robinson, but both of us had the same reaction. Since when did being called Jackie Robinson become a slur? It's only a slur if you believe in the mythology of who people still perceive Jack Roosevelt Robinson to be. Passive, um, non-aggressive, is Malcolm X infamously described him, Mr. Ricky's boy, so on and so mm -hmm. forth. And we think that's problematic. Young people have to understand that there's a range of ways that people resisted. Jack Robinson's resistance doesn't look like Colin Kaepernick and it didn't look like um, the minute San Jose State uh, in 1968, didn't look like uh, the resistance of Althea Gibson or you know, countless of Muhammad Ali or, or Joe Frazier or countless others, but it was resistance and it was militant in many ways. So. We want um, young people to kind of recognize that range of resistance to celebrate that. That's a little bit of the so what. So it's like, why are we revisiting Jackie Robinson? Because we don't know Jack. And in fact, we say if, if after reading this book, you still think you know Jackie Robinson, you don't know Jack. Um, and, and I think that's important. Secondly is this idea, and, and I have to, to be honest, I was very much influenced by uh, Brian Crandall and the Connecticut Writing Project and just having him as a colleague. As historians, we write for other historians. And so we're always in the mindset that the most important review, the most important audience is our other scholars. Working with Brian, seeing the impact that he was having with young people, writing to issues that, and, and this is part of my challenge, I'll go off on a little bit of a tangent here, with the pushback against critical race theory. When young people don't, the phantom menace of critical race theory, mm -hmm. when young people don't see themselves in the curriculum, when they're not exposed to literature, in the same way that they're not exposed to sports that allow them to imagine a place for them in those activities, it actually is a detriment to those young people. 
um, I was fortunate to work with Brian to remind me that there's a much bigger audience and a much more important audience that was hungry for the stories, um, the history that we need to tell. And it's why I've moved into um, young adult now. I, I think that particularly in this moment, when we worry about whether the message is getting through about how important history is. And I think about the late Congressman John Lewis when he passes in 2020. Mm -hmm. um, here he is um, on his deathbed, he writes this phenomenal letter to the American people published posthumously in the New York Times. I love that it's a piece of writing. I um, mean, yeah. I've been assigning to my students every, uh, every year, but he articulates what I like to call the, the Lewis Doctrine. Uh, what he says is that ordinary people with extraordinary vision can redeem the soul of America. That's point number one. How do we develop that extraordinary vision? We study the past, which I think is really powerful. We can't study the past unless it's accessible, unless it's written in a way. That's why I love the course that you're talking about that invites young people to recognize in these people that we lionize, um, that they're giants with feet of clay, that they had fears, that they had concerns, that it took moral... Um, courage and, and fortitude to, to accomplish things that they did, but they did it in spite of those things. And that's what we can take away from their experiences. Absolutely love it. Thank you. Love, love all the history. I, I, I can't think of anything else, you know, more to, I can't argue any of that, <laughs> which I think is the, the point. Um, just kind of going back to the book, I'm kind of geek out historically now. Again, I'm just a big geek here. Um, I loved all of the authentic photographs, the newspaper articles, all of the, the little bits and snippets of history. Um, I originally wanted to become a history teacher. And when I asked, when someone asked me what I loved about the history, it's the people's stories and what is behind it and all the different points of view that come together. Um, and I loved just reading all the little tidbits, um, learning about Mac Robinson. And, you know, you never know who he is when you're learning about Jesse Owens or anything else that he did to influence his brother. I mean, it's, it's incredible um, to learn about, you know, the rest of the Robinson family uh, or anyone else that he associated with. You don't get a lot of that. Um, and I love the, the extra inning facts, the, the things to think about sections. Um, how did you decide as a writer and as a historian, which elements to include in the main narrative and which to save for the additional sections or the sidebars? So it's such a it's such a great question, um, and I think it's funny, uh, Joe. It's like historians dream of being, um, you know, English professors, and English professors always want to be historians. We're we're like athletes and and um, music stars. <laughs> like they're always looking at the other side and going, "That's what I should have done." Um, but what I appreciate about your question and it was attention. Michael Long has been doing AY a lot longer than I have in, in children's books. And he kept saying to me, which was unnatural for me, the delicious tidbits are nice, but at the end of the day, there's got to be a cohesive story here. Mm -hmm. You know, we have to keep, which was helpful because when I put that together with the big so what that Brian introduced me to, it kind of kept me focused on narrative. Narrative is what's going to maintain young people's interest in Jack from the opening of the story to the end, it's going to communicate the way in which the story of the Robinson family is the story of the great migration and the story of civil rights. In fact, I'll tell you when um, George Floyd is killed in, here in Minneapolis in, in May of 2020, a few days later, Al Sharpton came and delivered a eulogy for him here in the Twin Cities. And he proclaimed in that eulogy, George Floyd's story has been the story of black folks in America. I would argue, um, and you could do this with any great biography, 
Rosa Parks' story is a story of Black folks in America. Uh, Jack Robinson's story is a story of Black folks. We have to tell that in a way that young people can connect the dots. What I ended up doing or what we ended up doing is just kind of thinking of those extra innings as the fries. So we focused on the hamburger, but then we made sure that we were you know, garnishing the plate with a lot of delicious tidbits, which I, as a young person who, you know, my mom used to joke about this all the time. I lived in a dictionary looking things up that, you know, I'd read something in a book and I'd, you know, go to our Funk and Wagnalls and, and dig up all the information. I wanted that to be right there for the kids, like the, the nerds like us who, you know, want it immediately. And it's like, oh, well, here's the little sidebar. It's right here. So that, that's what motivated a lot. And we wanted to include primary sources. Quite frankly, we wanted to expose young people to what's exciting about being historians. When, you know, I remember telling a, a young girl in New York, when your um, teachers assign, you know, a, a history paper to you, they're actually inviting you to be co-investigators. So it's this idea that, like, this is really neat. There are sources that other scholars may have looked at, but you might find something new, or there might be newspaper articles or, or other resources that weren't available at the time and they're available now. So this is actually really important what you're doing. And my students would get very excited about this. What was so great is that young uh, woman after the presentation came up to Michael and I and said, I've never been more excited about taking my history course now. I can't wait to for the term paper. I was kind of dreading it and now I'm, I'm excited about it, which meant a lot to us because we wanted to you know, kind of drill down to what's exciting about being historians. And the, the most exciting part of my job is that I'm a detective. And we never really exposed that to, to young people. Um, when we are kind of going in pursuit of those facts about some individual and trying to piece together their story, um, that's what's really exciting. My students are my co-investigators. And ultimately, at some point, I like to see them evolve to master ace detective themselves and to continue that tradition by asking really good questions, which is the cornerstone of what, what we both do in English and in, in history. Yeah, getting, getting those students to explore that story and, and really dig into those, those primary sources, as you said, is so much fun. Um, um, just, another, just another writing question for you really quickly. Um, you had a few sections throughout the book, there's kind of spaced out, that broke the fourth wall and talked right to the reader to, to to think about things and to ask questions. Um, what was the decision there? Um, I, I love them myself, but I know other people don't like that, but why did you decide to do that? I, I, it's a phenomenal question. Um, very much Michael Long's influence there, but we both agreed about this. Uh, and I'll, I'll give you a historic, historical anecdote to kind of make the point about why we did it. One of my um, favorite books is Warriors Don't Cry by Mela Patilla Beals, the youngest of Little Rock Nine. And what I love about that is, is she's kind of laying out the book. She says, you know, it's, you know, 1957, um, New Year's Eve, and, her, and, you know, everything's going crazy. And she's keeping this journal, this diary. And she reflects that her mother said to her, keep a diary, hun, because you're living through history. And one day, you never know, somebody's going to want to look back and, and, you know, assess what this moment meant, and you'll be part of documenting that. And that's not why she kept the journal, but the journal itself became, it becomes this incredible resource. What I love about that is two things. Number one, it's this encouragement to young people, particularly in our historical moment, to write. And it doesn't have to be formal writing, but it's just capturing the emotion and documenting their feelings and thinking on paper about the enormity of what they're living through as a form of processing. Um, and, and I love that. Uh, we broke that wall, though, because we also thought it was important to have that Melba Patilla Beals mom moment with our readers and to kind of 
peer out and go, hey, we understand that you will recognize a lot of what's happening. Why do we, you know, why do we use this language? Which today we, people wouldn't use language like that. We want you to understand that it's bad, but we want you to understand that's the world that Jack lived in. So when we break that fourth wall, it's really with the intention of, you know, kind of um, peeling back the, the layers a little bit and just saying, you know, we're here and we want you to know that as part of this process, we recognize that what we're writing about has real meaning for you in, in this moment. I love those, those moments where I could just pause and, as, and think about what my, my father-in-law called them, passages to ponder. Just, just sit and think deeply. You know, put the bookmark in, close it, and just, hmm. And then, and then really think of the, about the connections to my own life and what I see in my students and my family and my community around me. Um, and just think about how far we've come as a society and how much farther we need to go um, on many issues. Um, I, I just so thank you for for including those. I really really appreciated those personally. Well, you um, made made my day, but you certainly when Michael Long sees this, he'll be overjoyed because he, you know, it's, it was interesting. As much as he emphasized narrative, that was the other thing that we agreed on immediately. As we said, we need to, you know, we have to contextualize some of this. It's it's one of the reasons that I'm so adamant as we look at the pushback against teachers today in Florida and in Texas, across the country. Um, you know, young people need co-pilots, you know, people to ask difficult questions of and to, and to provide those types of prompts and exposure to primary sources and, and um, interrogation of narratives that become an essential feature of what it means to be a, a member of a participatory democracy. So these are all essential to these kind of core democratic values, which, you know, we can take for granted. Never or rarely do you hear people talk about writing being essential to that. They always talk about literacy and it's more in terms of reading. But writing is an essential part of that. You know, I, I think back to um, you know the the idea that at the core, um, uh, and you really have to until before you can really appreciate what you think about something, you have to do the hard work of kind of processing your your feelings and emotions, your thoughts on paper. Excellent. I, I love that young people needing co-pilots. They, they they usually just want a wingman, but they they really need co-pilots, <laughs> right, to help navigate. Um, so what, what was it like working with a, a co-author and, and researchers to, to put everything together? It was um, wonderful working with Michael Long. I um, did not appreciate the pure joy of being able to bounce writing off of a partner again. I, you know, we work in silos typically. And so there was something unique um, and special about finishing a chapter and sending it to him and getting real-time feedback and these late night sessions where we would just get into these very nerdy, you would have you would have loved it, Joe, um, Brian and Tanya would have loved it as well. It's kind of nerdy conversations about writing and, and grammar. And so we spent one day talking about three sentences in, in the fourth chapter of the book or something. One of the best days I've ever had. I mean, it was just, it was, it was fun thinking about the craft of writing. And then secondly, it was just great researching with somebody. I worked at the Jackie Robinson Foundation. So I knew, I know Rachel Robinson. I have a tremendous amount of respect for her. And it was Rachel who um, really started me down the path of calling Jackie Robinson Jack, because she always calls him Jack. Um, and some people would say, well, that was, there's an intimacy there and a familiarity. And yet I think she, I would argue, most people would argue, she knows him more intimately than anyone. So her not referring to him as Jackie meant something to me in terms of that's who the man was. Jackie is this nine years with the Dodgers. 
Um, and sometimes he goes by that post um, baseball, but in Michael's, uh, one of Michael's books on Jack before we teamed up, um, First Class Citizenship, Jack signs his letters, Jack. So that's who, who he was. And, and I think we honor that. But at the same time, I think um, what was neat about working with somebody else is I never, and, and I say this to young people when we're out on the road too, surround yourself with good people. I never would have done this book had it not been for Michael reaching out to have me contribute to another project. And then the two of us just kind of having a conversation and both of us saying, this is what's needed right now. Neither of us have capacity right now, but if we work together, we can get it done. And I, and I love that for young people too. Like, you know, surround yourself with good people and there's something to be said for um, the power of shared ideas and shared values and, and teaming up because that's also the story of Jack Robinson, his teammates, his good teammates. And, and Michael Long is one of the best teammates. I, I've had a, a career full of incredible teammates, Brian uh, Crandall being one of them. But Michael Long was an incredible, incredible teammate. Nice. Just on a side note, after reading the book, I referred to him as Jack as well. I think I'm like, oh, th this he he needs a little more respect there. And so when I started doing and telling people that I was, you know, reading this book and talking about Jack Robinson, people are asking me, why do you not call him Jackie? And so, you know, I've had to explain as well, and I can't do it as eloquent as you do, but um, I think there's something there about the way that we, we make that distinction again. Um, kind of, you know, little side tangent, but um, so what was, what was your research process like when you, when you first started getting into this? Did you go through firsthand accounts or did you look to see what everyone else had written first or what was that process? We, we did the secondary literature first and Michael and I both have written on Jack. And of course, mm -hmm. I spent so much time at the foundation and I had given probably, you know, conservatively hundreds of presentations on, on Jackie, not on Jack. So it became important for us to go through some of the big biographies and there are a number that are, you know, phenomenal and just say, can we you know, as we think about how we want to tell the story and what we think is unique about the story that we want to tell, you know, what's valuable here? And then what does that leave for us to research so that we can flesh out those aspects of his life that we think have been left out? And so that facilitated um, the writing process a little bit for us. Uh, it was also really great to, you know, a lot of times you're deep in the archives and kind of looking at paper collections and things like that. Yeah. It was fun for us to go through Black newspapers and to, you know, kind of look at and evaluate Jack as a young person in the way that he was covered by the African-American press. You know, what were they referring to him as and, and how were they, you know, when did the Jackie nickname catch on? When did that begin? But how was he referred to in the African-American press? It was, it was kind of fun recovering that history. Um, in fact, I'm a big fan of, and I always talk about history as historical recovery. It's there. Somebody just has to go dig it up. And, you know, again, it's a great message for, for young writers in particular is that, you know, you never know what buried treasures, writers make decisions, right? And it's a good way to kind of, so, and, and I love that you called that out in our book, Joe, we made decisions about what to include. And we, we would hope that young people would interrogate and say, well, why didn't they include this? Or I found this and I think this is interesting. So we're inviting them into that process, which was part of the idea around breaking the fourth wall. But also I, I think part of our, our process is that there was so much stuff that mostly me, I just kept, it was special pleadings every day for poor Michael. Can't we include this? I just, it's the historian in me, like the history nerd. I just found this incredible thing. And he's like, settle down. <laughs> you put it up for 48 hours and we'll come back to it and we'll find a way to, to either include it or not. So 
Very nice. Um, no, I, I love the the historical, um, just the the explorations that are, are I think are coming out from all different voices. Now, I was kind of first really really got into him with with Chris Crow's work with Emmett Till, and how he um, uncovered a lot of that, and then you know just kind of I branched off from there, reading all sorts of different um, newer histories. I guess not new histories, but new to us histories, like you said, the ones that were always there just needed to be uncovered. Um, so what would this is brilliant, by the way. So yeah, yeah. What would you recommend to writers, maybe especially younger writers, who want to delve into historical nonfiction? Uh, I, three three big things. Um, first and foremost is don't be intimidated by the library shelf that tells you that there's nothing left to be said about that thing that you want to study. There's always something left to be said. Um, and the novel interpretation sometimes is as important as significant as the new research. The person who's able to translate a voluminous scholarship um, or a complex story in a way that people can identify and say, yeah, this is, this is the why. This is why this person is important. And we see that so much um, in some of the great um, YA literature that does that. And I'm, I'm so honored that people think that, that Qualum Jack is, is in that company because that was really important to us. Um, I think secondly is to really enjoy the process and the journey of research. I mean, research is fun. We, we take um, you know, these really incredible, uh, you know, there, there's this great uh, lecture that's given by this history professor in 1969, where he says, you know, uh, the, the problem with the way that we teach history or we think about history is that we think about it as a collection of facts. And one does not collect facts she doesn't need, hang on to them, and then at some propitious moment in the future, use those facts to achieve some solution. We're first perplexed by problems and we collect facts in order to solve those problems, to, to come to some conclusion about something that we're, we're interested in or we're, we're driven by, we're perplexed by. Um, that's true of great literature and, it, and it's true of great history. So the second question or, or the second kind of point to young people is just ask really good questions. Get in, get in the mindset that the best of the best who do this work are always interrogating and always asking really probing questions and thinking about those elements of things that we assume we know so much about. And in fact, sometimes we learn we know very little about. Um, best example for me of that was uh, Manning Marable's book on Malcolm X that came out a couple of years ago, Malcolm X, A Life of Reinvention, where Manning Marable had to remind literally um, scores of readers that uh, Malcolm X's sojourn to Mecca, he'd been to Mecca twice. So we often use that, Alex Haley used that as a device to talk about Malcolm's conversion and softening of his tones, but that wasn't his first trip to Mecca. That little detail is important. So that's an example of, you know, the, the new research that changes the way that we think about a historical figure, but far more compelling for me are the works by, um, you mentioned Chris, uh, and I think about a half a dozen other people right now that just move you in the direction where you go, this seemed like a really complex story, but this person has boiled it down in a way that now I understand and based on that understanding, I can take action. And then the third is, um, and, and I can't emphasize this enough, um, writing is a, is a process and there's a lot of joy in it. Don't let anybody steal your joy. It sounds silly, but we, I say this to young people all the time. If you like to write, you, know, um, you can think about this in, in, in terms of Jackie Robinson as well. Jackie later on 
wrote a column for the Amsterdam News. We talk about this. Jack was not a natural writer. Um, in fact, you know, he he didn't he became a history major because he didn't do very well in math, and you know, but he was very much um, an intellectual. He came to writing because he believed it was important for him to share something about what was happening in that moment around civil rights and other issues that he cared about. And he was able to get better at writing in the same way he was able to improve in sports. And so my third message to young people is don't don't ever walk away from the joy of that or think that you can't improve. Um, just like you can improve your golf swing or your baseball swing, you can get very, very, very proficient at writing. But the more important thing is to be able to use that as a device to share what's in your what's in your heart, what's in your soul. That's what Jack did in his in his columns. Well, that was amazing. That. And you know, I was I you know, Hero knows this about me, but when my research with um, several African-born refugee youth in and out of school, one of the big ahas I found as an English teacher was that there was more writing occurring in history classes than in English classes. And it even led me to write a piece recently called History Should Come First, because he's right, English teachers want to be history teachers, history teachers want to be English teachers, because it's a different variation of storytelling, just like art. Art, art depicts different stories. And one of the, the takeaways that I had from this incredible interview was, you know, when I was reading about the high school the game where they lost because Glendale you know ransacked and, and jumped on them you know one of the things I wrote in the, my margins I'm like Crandall I wonder if you can find research on those three guys what were the three who were the three guys from that team that did that and what did their adult lives look like did it look anywhere near Jackie Robinson and what would that story be would they would would any of those three have regret because they deliberately knew what they were doing and probably were coached by their fathers just a fascinating question so I, I thank you for getting me thinking that way you guys did a great job this was amazing Woo! a lot of, a lot of fun um I think I should let Joe um, take us out with a final writing prompt before I say my thank yous. All right. Okay. Uh, whoops, sorry, I'm doing the pushing the wrong buttons. There we go. All right. So I have another text-based prompt. This one comes from Call Him Jack, of course. Um, on page 81, one of my favorite paragraphs in the book reads: Jack had succeeded, especially in sports, because he had practiced selective retaliation. Hmm. Rather than retaliating all the time, sometimes he had let others fight on his behalf. At times he had swallowed the insults and turned them into muscle and skills, the tools he used to vanquish his opponents on the football field, the baseball diamond, the basketball court, and the track field. So with that in mind, let's write about selective retaliation in our own lives. What have you retaliated against selectively? When have you held back? And how has that served you? Does selective retaliation still have a place today? And then explain what you think about that and how it connects to your life and society and everything in between. Wow. That is one Great heck of a good question. Prompt, you, you, got, you know, you could just design a whole semester's worth of work. <laughs> I did. <laughs> <laughs> um, I always get to have the last word, usually. Um, always, usually. My last word today um, really is of enormous thanks and really a debt of gratitude to you, Joe, and you, Yohoro. I was excited to hear you talk about Jack Robinson, but what I got was so much more valuable as far as I'm concerned. And I thank you, Joe, for your questions. And I thank you, Dr. Williams, for your um, 
your willingness to be so open about yourself as a writer and um, with such beautiful descriptions of your writing process and um, such beautiful advice for young writers. I, I'm really overwhelmed by- And yet I need to point out too, I need to point out for those who watch this at home and, and view it, that not only did you know, Hurl Williams color coordinate his outfit for the picture at the beginning with the <laughs> But if you pay attention right now, if you look at Yohuro's dress tonight, his sweater with the with the the slide that we have up right now, it's like the man, like he just does it naturally, right? This is it would look flat. like we have a dresser on the show. <laughs> they don't do this for you in the history channel. This is this. <laughs> Come back to the writing project then anytime. We'll make sure that we make you look amazing. Not that you need us to. That interview blew my mind. Thank you both so much. Thank you for having us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Amazing. I also want to thank listeners or viewers of today's program. We are so glad you were here. Please don't ever miss an episode of The Right Time because they're all pretty amazing, though I do have to say this one kind of blew my mind. Um, you can sign up for our newsletter um, at nwp.org and then you'll know what shows are coming up and you'll never miss one. If you want to talk more about writing nonfiction or writing history in your classrooms, um, you should join the studio at nwp.org where we have 5,000 educators having conversations about um, teaching writing and being writing writers themselves. And you can always find this podcast at NWP Radio. Thank you. Good You're listening to NWP Radio, a production of the National Writing Project. NWP. Thank you.